no matter your rank, no matter how long you served, I think that it is always going to be very difficult to replicate how it feels to be in the military. What's going on, everybody, and welcome back to Never Left Behind, the podcast. We missed last week's episode due to our book release on 9-11, but we are back with some exciting shows coming up, including this one. This week, we are joined by Katie Crom, who is an active duty lieutenant colonel in the United States Army. Katie shares stories about her deployments overseas, working as the aide to four-star General Votel, growing up in a family of veterans, and important advice on veterans who are looking to transition. We are honored to have Katie on the show, and we hope you enjoy this episode as much as we do. Real stories, real heroes, for a real cause. This is Never Left Behind, the podcast. Katie, it's great to finally have you on. How are you this weekend? I'm doing great, Bob. Great to see both of you guys after seeing you a couple of weeks ago. I know. Uh, Dan and I were recently talking about how it was great to see you and your husband at the event in Ohio. Uh, for people listening, obviously, just short, we released our book, The 20-Year War, at the National Veterans Memorial Museum. And Katie was uh, kind enough to fly all the way from Florida with her husband to join us. And it was a great event. And we're excited to have you on our podcast this week. Yeah, thanks so much. It was actually really inspirational. And the building itself just kind of reminded me that you, know, you are one of many after 250 years of a lot of wars in this country. So it was, it was a great place to be. And if you've never been, if it was your first time, it's pretty incredible the first time you step in and you see how big that building is and how much they have going on. So I'm hoping that you guys had a chance to kind of walk through it. Yeah, we did. I mean, we walked in kind of right at dusk, you know, so the sun was starting to set and you could see the ribbons that they had. Oh, and I yeah. guess that's the point of that when you're walking in. And so it's the ribbons that you have on your dress uniform. And so, that, that kind of took my breath away, to be honest. I mean, it was beautiful. Yeah. Well, I don't think I've seen it like that uh, before. When I went in a few times prior, I went in like in the morning or afternoon and you didn't see like almost that stained glass effect that they had. Right. Yeah. And, and for people who don't know what we're talking about, you should absolutely just look it up. Just look up like Google images or something of the museum because it's got some incredible architecture where it's almost like two overlapping rings. Um, but they specifically designed it to where there's a rooftop space and there are different um, service ribbons that are like basically stained glass mm -hmm. um, looking like those service ribbons. And during dusk, the sun comes through that glass and projects the colors on the inside of the building. And it just looks incredible. Like yeah. it, it's so brilliantly made like that. That place is so cool. And I, I could spend I mean, I've already spent a lot of time there, but I could spend a lot more. <laughs> oh, absolutely. They and, need to get the word out on that museum. I mean, it's just, yeah, everyone needs to go there. It's only been they've only been there for two and a half years, I think. Yeah. So. Well, that was the unfortunate thing is they opened literally right before COVID. So it's like, <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> they opened and then they were starting to ra ramp up their programming, starting mm -hmm. to get the word out there that, you know, this this place existed. And then covid shut everything down so right. they they've done an excellent job of adjusting and being able to move a lot of things virtually um they have a lot of virtual programming mm -hmm. and honestly if you talk to uh, bill butler and, and general ferreter um they will tell you that that was actually kind of a blessing in disguise because it forced them uh to do more um national outreach like not just focus on getting people in the museum but getting people aware of the museum just all across the country yeah, so. all online 
yeah, it's been uh, it, it's been cool, and I, I hope a lot more people you know are become aware of it and definitely make the trip to go visit. I think every veteran, anybody who's connected to military service, should absolutely visit it. Um, even civilians, if they just want to kind of have a, a better perspective of what it's like to serve and go through like the sequence of of, of events of like initially enlisting you know, having that call to service, what it's like to serve, what it's like to serve in combat, and then what it's like to return from that. Mm -hmm. um, and it's got it through all areas. Yeah, of there, so. absolutely. Yeah. I also love how it's not in DC, right? Yeah. So it's in yeah. Ohio. It's kind of in the, you know, part of America in the Midwest where a lot of soldiers come from. So I yeah. think that's kind of cool. Like put it in the middle of a normal community rather than you know, the nation's capital or something like where you would assume it would be. Well, and, and speaking on that, um, you know, the first question and topic I want to get into is, is kind of where it all got started for you. And we recently found out, actually, my girlfriend told me because you were telling her and her family first, but you grew up near Lake Erie, which obviously is right. one state over from Columbus, Ohio, and not far, about a three hour drive. What was that like for you growing up in that area? And how did that kind of start the idea of you wanting to commission in the army? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm fifth generation army, um, oh, wow. but my dad wow. retired. Um, so we lived all over the country and then also in Germany for mm -hmm. four and a half years. And when we came back right before I entered high school, we came back to this little town called Fairview on Lake Erie, Pennsylvania. My dad's final assignment was um, as a commander of all the you know ROTC college units in Western Pennsylvania. Um, and then he later went into academia and on and on. But so, you know, I had come from being surrounded by kids like me. So everyone's mm -hmm. parents from the military, grown up on military bases to this tiny town, 500 kids in my high school, um, almost completely white to um, Indian Americans and one African American in my school. Wow. And I just remember mm -hmm. walking in the first day and being like, what is this? <laughs> um, Holy white and, is going on. You know, they were all talking really slowly to me because they heard that I'd come from Germany and they thought I was an exchange student. I'm like, no, no, no. My parents are in the military or my dad's <laughs> in the military. I'm not German. Um, and so right off the bat, I'm like, wow, this is just a completely different experience. Mm -hmm. um, and everyone kind of looked the same, talked the same, you know, had the same upbringing. And the first year was actually quite a struggle for me just to kind of get my head around the fact that, um, you know, they just, I don't want to say that people weren't open-minded, but it was just a different lens that they had looked through their whole life. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so when I went to college, you know, four years later, um, applied to a bunch of colleges and the one I chose Lehigh university was super expensive, you know, still is. And my parents were like, listen, you know, we'll, we'll help you pay for this, but we, we can't afford to pay for the whole thing. Why yeah. don't you apply for an ROTC scholarship? And this was in 99. Um, so no 9-11, you know, the military wasn't really in the news. They weren't doing much. I mean, obviously they were doing a lot of things in garrison and training, but no one was at war. Um, and so my dad's like, you can go to college, be a news anchor woman. You know, that's what I wanted to do at the time. Um, and this will help you pay for school. You can be in reserves. And I'm like, yeah, fine, whatever. Just get me to college with my friends, you know? So went there, uh, in the first couple of years, I was the absolute worst ROTC cadet <laughs> on the planet. You know, I mean, horrible. I just, you know, I was more interested in school and partying, doing normal college stuff. Um, and 9-11 hit when I was a junior. And all of a sudden it was like, holy crap, this is real. Mm -hmm. And so I started to kind of invest more time in it. And then that next summer you go to this kind of training camp for six weeks. You totally, totally immersed in the army. And I absolutely loved it. Like I love the leadership aspect of it, the physical part, the camaraderie. 
and from there I'm like, okay, this is the place I was supposed to be. It felt again, like home, like these people look different. They, you know, it, it was just a nice kind of inclusive environment, but everyone's from different backgrounds and yeah. that just felt like home to me. And you I'm know, like, all right, this is the right decision. You know, it's interesting because I'm, I'm a military brat too. My dad was in the air force for 21 years, also moved all over the place. And I would have told you, I would have never joined the military because I, I've witnessed, you know, what my family went through. Um, right. as far as like constantly being relocated and, and, you know, having to make new friends and all that kind of stuff. Um, did you kind of have the same perspective where you're like, I, I don't want to do this, but you know what, if it's going to pay for college and I'll, I'll make my way through it, but I'm, I'm not going to stick with this. This is just to pay for college. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, you have to sign on the dotted line. You're going to stay in for four years. And I'm like, I will get out in four years <laughs> in one hour. Right. I mean, that was, that was my plan. Yeah. Um, so, so for you're, some reason, like you get there and you're like, wow, this something feels right about this. Uh, you, know, you didn't want it to feel right, but it did. And I want to go back to obviously the area you grew up in. Did I'm sure you spent your summers on Presque Isle. Oh, for sure. No, I absolutely love Erie. And uh, it's it's a great place to grow up. You know, yeah. <laughs> there there is a beauty in um, the Midwest. I mean, it's just good people. Did you ever go Presque to, did you ever go to the ice cream place on Presque Isle that does the it's almost like an orange, like cream sickle. It's oh, like orange yeah. and vanilla. Sarah's. Yes. Sarah's. Yeah. So I recently, oh, that awesome. I recently went there a couple of weeks ago when we were visiting Erie and Dan and I, when we were first working on the book, the 20 year war, we went to Prescott in the winter. That's the place with the lighthouse oh, with okay, yeah. the lake that was completely frozen over. Yep. So we got to right. see it for the first time with like layers of ice and snow. And then I just went back a couple of weeks ago and saw where it's just greenery and it's so pretty up there. Like I, I can see the small town vibe of why people like yourself, my girlfriend, other people that have, you know, wanted to leave and pursue other places. But I think for me, for somebody seeing it for the first time, it is kind of a cool little town. It's got some charm to it. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of goodness up there. Um, people people leave and they come back. I mean, we've even talked about it. My husband and I are like, this would not be a bad place to be, except for the snow. Like yeah <laughs> that's yeah. very true yeah when we yeah. Vi when we visited i was i was like man i i wouldn't want to live here <laughs> <laughs> but again we saw it probably in the in the worst i think it was, was negative five with the wind chill dude it was brutal yeah. i mean we walked out on that um on the, the little jetty yeah the jetty with the lighthouse and i mean it was blowing wind it was all iced over um it was i was like yeah i don't want to be <laughs> oh yeah i mean the winter's crazy the first time my husband came and he grew up in northern scotland in the mountains and he he had been in florida for work and then flown up um to erie he was like where the hell are we like yeah. why is it so cold here <laughs> but the summers you can fish for walleye you know there's so much to do in the fall like i mean oh, so i'm bummed that i'm not going up you know in two weeks from now to where it'll be almost like peak but yeah, yeah just the fall colors and everything up there and it's such a massive lake. It really is a pretty area. So, um, but that's really cool to hear kind of how it all got started to see you go into it. Now I, I want to ask though, so you're, you're five generations and you have, um, I know you have a sister, obviously she's also in the book, but, uh, and she also yeah. served, but do you have any other siblings or, or is it just you two? We do. We, so I'm the oldest and then we have a sister in the middle. Um, and she didn't do anything in the military, but she's, you know, she's had a great career and kind of, finance and tech and things like that um she would have been a great a great soldier yeah but she's just wasn't so uh, obviously your other sister uh, so it's just three girls right 
That's right. Yeah, oh, wow. no yeah. boys. They always say I was my dad's son. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I imagine, you know, how how does like your your parents and grandparents feel with uh you know you and you and Christine uh, serving, and especially like I guess continuing the generation of being a fifth generation, um, you know, army. Oh yeah, I mean they were they were so proud of us. I think that when you know I commissioned in two thousand three and went straight to a unit and straight to Iraq, and I think that that really kind of weighed on my parents. I remember my mom saying she you know, broke out of the hives for months at a time and. You know, now that we all have kids, I can imagine like sending your kids off to war would be the scariest thing on the planet, right? And especially back then when they're, I mean, it's almost, you know, 20 years ago. Um, yeah. You mm-hmm. could only call once a month or whatever it was. And just the the unknown, I think, really ate at them. Mm-hmm. But I know how proud they are. And even, you know, my extended family, my uncles and aunts, they just, they're always posting stuff and kind of just talking about our time in the military and just that's their connection to it. And how proud they are. And then our oldest daughter, uh, my stepdaughter, but our oldest daughter, she just joined the army. So she's oh, wow. in, yeah, her advanced individual training at Fort Benning as a cavalry scout and then hoping to go to West Point next year. So mm. it's the, it continues. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. I, I don't, I don't know if I know anybody who's that multi generational. Like no. I, I know a few families that are like th- three generations, maybe four, but. I think that's the first time I've heard somebody who's five generation. Yeah. How, how, it's not continuous, right? Like they yeah. were involved in some war and then there was a break, but there's, yeah, five in a row. That's so a how is that? Because I'm I'm genuinely intrigued. Like how is that lineage? Have you guys traced it back? And like how is that, I guess, talked about within your family? Yeah, we've just kind of started to. Actually, last year, my dad and I were writing an article. And, um, you know, he's always said you're fifth generation. And I'm like, we need to figure out, you know, what that means. Who yeah, did what? Yeah. Um, we started looking and literally every war um, one of our family members has been in. And it extends, it was, it's my dad's side, but on my mom's side, is in the Air Force too in Vietnam. Um, you know, I mean, all the way back to the revolution. So it's, it's wow. pretty cool. Yeah, could yeah, could be Colonel Sanders in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's incredible. I, uh. Because, you know, obviously we enjoy storytelling. I mean, we think it's it's critically important. So that that's why I was I was genuinely curious about, you know, five generations, if there's like a, a recorded history of that. And like if, if there's, I don't know, a trunk in the attic or something mm. of your parents' house or something that has like, you know, memorabilia and things like that, I th- you know, that would be. Uh, yeah, my dad started to put it all together um, and in their house right now he has. My one grandfather was the adjutant to Eisenhower um, and he found wow. this letter, you know, written to him and just putting all this stuff together. And he's putting, you know, the slides that um, pictures on the little slides that people used to do in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. He's putting all of that together and he found uh, my grandfather's stuff from Korea and from Vietnam um, and then a bunch of stuff from World War II. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah. And my mm-hmm. uncle, who actually did not serve in the military, but it's probably... You know, the biggest supporter talks about it more than anyone. Um, he is now kind of in charge of compiling all that. So it's pretty neat. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Well, I'm he sure he's there. excited to do all that, like yeah. to share his family story and, and be, you know, a, a, a patriotic person in that role. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's just as important as serving, I think, is just you oh, know, yeah. contributing on the outside and just linking communities that, you know, aren't linked to mm-hmm. a military base or something to what's going on. I mean, that's it's a huge role out there for people. I think. Yeah, absolutely. You guys are going to have little 
little museum at your house. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of bad smells. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, you, you said, um, you know, right after you commissioned in 2003, uh, you immediately deployed, Mm. um, like what was that, um, transition, I guess, coming out and going to, cause I guess you would have went to OCS, right? You would have had to go through, is that right? Yeah. So OBC, OBC, that's right. Um, yeah. So the kind of logistics basic course or whatever, that's, Mm -hmm. that was my first branch that I went into and graduated at the beginning of December. And my unit was part of the, the third armored cavalry regiment was part of the invasion. Um, that March. And so when I got there in December, I'm like, Oh, there's no way they're going to send me to Iraq. You know, I'll be on the rear detachment or whatever they were calling it back then. And, you know, just get everything ready for the the unit coming back. And, um, I signed in and they were like, Hey, tomorrow go to the the CIF, like our central issuing facility, pick up your uniforms, your flak jacket, and you're on the next flight out there. I was like, holy crap. Really? Um, so that was that was quite a transition to be honest. Because even in OBC, um, I was still seeing my college girlfriends, and you know, I still kind of felt connected like that. And we we're going out to bars, and, you know, dancing, doing all the normal <laughs> stuff you do when you're 21 or 22. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, I land in Kuwait, and then get on another plane, and they fly us straight to Al Assad Air Base in Iraq. Me and another lieutenant that I'm still good friends with. Mm. Um, and I just remember, you know, getting off, and it was like it just that heat that, you know, kind of comes in the back of the plane as you're exiting. And I was mm-hmm. like, where the hell am I? You know, what am I doing? I just, two weeks ago, I was freaking dancing it up. And now I'm in the center of a wreck. Um, so that, that was pretty difficult, but I would say within two weeks, it was kind of like, all right, game on, you know, this is, this is where I was supposed to be. Let's do this. Yeah. It's crazy. You know, it's a, uh... It's an interesting feeling because I, you know, I've been asked that a, a few times, and you, um, you kind of described it perfectly as that initial blast of heat when you step off of like a dry into heat into a country. Yeah, so it's like oh, yeah. kind of where we grew yeah, up, like high very desert. Similar. Yeah, but imagine being in, you know, conditioned space or wherever. You know, you're in a bird, and then you'll you know you're going there, but you don't know what you're expecting, mm. and then you just get blasted with this heat. It's like a giant like hair dryer yeah yeah it is yeah. and the smell i always know oh, your yeah. senses kind of take over right yeah. i mean i i still like viscerally know that smell and that just the feel and the, the sand and the area the dust you know it's interesting that you say that because i i remember all of my deployments based on the smell really yeah That's oh fine. yeah yeah like i distinctly remember what uh mosul smelled like i remember yeah. what baghdad smelled like Weird. Yeah, I remember what um, different provinces in Afghanistan smell. Is it like. just vile? No, you know what's interesting is it really depends on where you're at. Like, there's certain areas where it does smell good. Like, mm. there's a lot of yeah. uh, foliage and there's a lot of plants and uh, fig trees and like you know it'll smell really good. Mm-hmm. But then when you walk into some streets, they're open sewers, so like it's above ground yeah. sewage. And burning that, trash, he, I always remember smelling. Yeah, the burning trash one was like I can vehemently like it's it. I can smell it right now. That's just the burn pits. Like, they have everything yeah. going. In Baghdad, we were immediately next to the burn pits, and I remember every day uh, talking about it because the the air would literally be like green when they were burning something. 
like super toxic. I don't know what they were. That's like a chemical burn. Like, burn it's yeah. Oh green. yeah. Like you, you could feel it in your lungs. It was like you were just Ugh. doing like a, you know, a, an intense five mile or something like that. Like y- you could feel it burning in your lungs. And I was like, yeah, this is good for us. And this is, this was in, uh, uh let's see, 2007, 2008. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 2008. So, so people were kind of talking about it, but not really. Obviously people are, are talking about it all the time now. Uh, but I remember talking about it being like, guys, this can't be good for us. <laughs> and they're like, oh, no, 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 you'll be fine. The metal in the air, yeah. You know? They'd be like, no, no, you're fine. It, and it's now fine. it's coming out. Yeah. They, they told us it's okay. You're okay. So, uh, Katie, how many deployments did you do or how many trips, I guess, are you going back and forth to Iraq in the Middle East? So I just did two deployments to Iraq, but then I lived in Jordan for three years in Amman, Jordan. And mm. then I have been going back and forth to the Middle East for the last 10 years. Wow. Mm. You know, I mean, before COVID, every couple of months. And then, you know, the one job I did um, working for General Motel, we went every month for kind of two or three weeks at a time. So no. I've never counted up the days I've been meaning to, but I've been to almost every country in the Middle East and Central Asia, what? all the stands, um, all around the Gulf, everywhere. What's so your favorite? I, mean, I love it. Um, to be honest, my favorite is Central Asia. Really? So, mm. you know, people really don't, I mean, I surely didn't understand kind of what those countries, you know, even where they were on the map, like you see them, but, you know, we would call them the flyover states in America, right? So it's just, you're transiting from Asia across to Europe, you fly over them, but it's this mix of like East meets meets West. um, And it's like a mix of Asia, Russian influence, Arab influence. I mean, Mm. the people are beautiful. The food is mostly good except for horse meat which they eat um yeah i won't eat that but i like horses too no. much <laughs> yeah i know it was they brought it out for one dinner and i remember it was like gray I'm like what is this it's gotta be tough like, i would oh, imagine horse meat. And i just like moved it around the plate i'm like i'm not, I'm not <laughs> yeah poor but it, biscuit. it's a really cool place out there and it's beautiful mountains um just the colors the scenery it's, it's incredible so and, and for people listening what's really cool is uh obviously you and your sister's dynamic with your husbands is obviously you're still active your husband is not and then your sister is not active and her husband is so it's kind of a cool flip did you meet your husband while you're in the service then i did yeah so my husband was um, a british fighter pilot that now is retired and flies for united airlines and then my sister's husband she met in the service as well and he is a special forces officer still serving at fort bragg that's crazy. So it's fun dinner table conversations. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kind of a family business in a lot of ways. It, it, does it ever like, I imagine that's kind of the topic that either all four of you get together and stay away from talking about, or it's just a general topic that probably is always going on with current events and stuff like that too. Yeah. I would say we don't talk about, you know, our jobs as much, but mm-hmm. we talk about current events a lot. Gotcha. And my parents are big news buffs and my middle sister and her husband, you know, they follow all of it as well. So it, it's more of that, you know, it's just kind of the surrounding mm-hmm. um, topics that we bring up. But then my brother-in-law, the SF guy, you know, I work at Special Operations Command Central for the Middle East now. So he and I talk a lot just at work even about what's going on, kind of help each other out. And, and you know, obviously with your sister, you being the oldest, and, you know, one of your younger sisters who commissioned, and I think you commissioned her, didn't you? I did. Yeah. You and My your, dad and I did together. That's, that, cool. that's really cool. So what was that yeah. like for you? I imagine, obviously, your dad has a proud dad moment for, you know, his daughters uh, serving the military. But 
I imagine you being the older sister, did you have a very proud moment of, of seeing your sister commission? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Christine, so she's six years younger than me and we were always very close. Um, so I was stationed in DC after I left Colorado, my first couple of deployments and she was in college at Virginia tech. Hmm. She was a sorty girl kind of doing normal college. And she lived with me the summer between her sophomore and junior year and junior and senior year. Okay, and wow. she was in hospitality management and doing a couple of internships. And so the end of the summer, um, between her junior and senior year, she came home one night from work and I was sitting on the couch or something. And she's like, listen, I have something really, really serious. I need to tell you. And I was like, are you pregnant? Like, What's the deal? <laughs> That's what it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> um, and she's like, I want to join the army. And I'm like, what? I mean, it floored me. We had never talked about it. I mean, absolutely not. I would have, I mean, she's an incredible leader, athlete, mm -hmm. all of that, but it just wasn't something I um, saw her doing because she just never brought it up. And I'm like, are you sure? Like, let's, let's sleep on this, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so next morning she's like, no, I'm serious. I, I really want to do it. And so I called a couple of friends that were in the kind of recruiting command and said, how does she do this? What's the least painful way she can you know, join the army? become an officer and they're like, Oh, there's, there's no non-painful way. You got to go to basic training. You know, you got to be a private and then you can go to OCS if you know, they let you. Mm -hmm. um, and so she did it and I went to her basic training graduation and she just, she looked happy. Um, and then her OCS, I, I commissioned her and then she went out to Fort Carson, Colorado, my first duty station as well. And she went straight to Afghanistan. And I just remember going, oh, God, like if anything happens to her, you know, I'll mm. never forgive myself. But she she's dominated it. I mean, she absolutely loved it. And it's, a, it's just a connection that's that's really special to share. And now that she's out, I think it's nice for her to still get to talk to me about the military and kind of stay connected. So a, yeah. a frat girl that went in the army. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's that's pretty cool. I, obviously, yeah. she looks up to you. Like, you know, obviously coming to you and telling there's got to be some kind of level of of her just appreciating what you're doing and being like, I want to be like my older sister. I want to, you know, commission and go into the army. Yeah, I think so. And she and I are very similar personality wise. And I think she saw um, the camaraderie I had with my friends, my fellow lieutenants, just what it felt like to lead soldiers, um, you know, going to war even. I mean, she saw when I came back just the the memories you share and you know 20 years later i'm still friends with all the same people as, yeah. you know i'm sure you are dan and i think she wanted that you know she's a social butterfly mm -hmm. and um a leader and she saw that the army fulfilled all those needs and went after that and, and from obviously meeting up with both you when i interviewed you and took your photos for our book um yeah on the inside i feel like you guys are just very intelligent you know very charismatic you know you care about people uh, on the outside, it's kind of like, she's like the sweet one and you're like the badass one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She's, um, that's a little bit of a facade for her. She can be pretty cutting, but uh, she? Yeah. she, yeah, she plays that card. Um, but yeah, she, she knows what she's doing out there now that she's leading that, you know, the nonprofit for veterans, um, mm -hmm. just a perfect fit for her right now. And she gets it, you know, she can see through, um, just, I think that a lot of uh, organizations, you know, have a hard time getting to the heart of what veterans really need. Yeah. And she was one. She's connected to her husband, obviously, to me, and she she can bring some reality to them on a daily basis for the investors and people that you know are trying to figure out where to go forward with it. Well, you've yeah. got nearly sixty thousand 
organizations that somewhat support veterans or benefit veterans, but it's very hard to find the few in between that actually are doing the right job of, of doing just that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, we have a, a, a father and son that also serve together mm-hmm. simultaneously, and it, it's really cool to see multi-generational, but, um, you know, and they share a story when they were deployed simultaneously and they were actually able to go on an objective together. But I wonder, did you guys ever like uh, pass by each other or overlap in a deployment at all or like have the same uh, same region or, or anything like that? No, we never did, unfortunately, because I was kind of doing the Gulf and, and Iraq and her units was doing Afghanistan. But I always I always wanted to do that. You know, I yeah. was always hoping when she stayed in that that would happen. Um, and now with my brother-in-law, you know, we're, we try to align sometimes and it, it hasn't worked yet, but I always thought that, that would be, I mean, it's quite the picture, right? I think yeah. you're talking about Sergeant Major Thetford, yep. right? Yeah, right. Thetford. Yep. yeah and he's, I, I've worked with him um, at CENTCOM for a couple of years. He's, he's awesome. And I've met his son and mm-hmm. that, that's a cool story to tell. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Of them kicking outdoors together that one <laughs> night. That's, that's a, a pretty that's cool story. Wild. Yeah. 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 That's insane. Like for that to happen. How did you, did you guys keep in touch at all then? Like, what was that like? both being in Iraq and Afghanistan, was it easy? Because back then, I feel like it wasn't even when cell phones were really around or when they were first coming up. Yeah, so we were we were um, deployed at different times, which was helpful. Okay. So um, when I was in Iraq, actually, I did not get to talk to her that much because she was in college. You know, and if I got mm-hmm. one call home, it was, it was to my parents and if she happened to be there. So it was more emails. Yeah. Um, but then when she went to Afghanistan, which was later, I think around 2010, um, she she and I emailed probably every other day, um, mm-hmm. just kind of stream of consciousness diary going on. I've I've wanted to go back and look at those emails uh, just to see. And I thought that'd be a cool little story to tell, book to write at some point, just the letters to each other back and forth. Well, I think that's such. Uh, I think you should. Um, yeah, because um, that's that's again a story that's not often told, and especially being sisters and having a lot of like commonalities there in service. I would imagine you have a lot of, uh, oh, I have something in my throat. <clears> throat> um, anyways, I imagine you have a, a, a lot of like similar thoughts and things and processing things differently. So I would imagine there's a lot of questions that go back and forth that typically wouldn't happen when even, you know, uh, I don't know, two friends are, are serving together. You know, it's, it's a much more connected um, thought process. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that's, and what I've noticed, I looked through some emails I sent to my dad on my first deployment a couple of years ago, and I was struck by the humor in them. <laughs> um, that's what I was, you know, I thought I would kind of go back and look at all these serious emails and like, today was, you know, second day of the war, and blah, blah, blah. But they weren't. It was, a lot of them were me telling stories about soldiers. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there's, there's nothing funnier out there than a second lieutenant and bunch of soldiers right so it was it's stories like that you know pulling over a humvee breaking down dumping hot coffee on yourself you know stuff like that more than the mission stories ironically and i always thought hey that's that's what you're writing home about is just the the human factor you know that's what keeps you connected and then with my dad and also my sister there was also just the deep understanding so you're not having to explain rank or you know stuff that like they just get it. And so I think that there was an ease when I was writing them both emails um, that they would understand, you know, what I was trying to say on the other side. Yeah. How often are there uh, kind of embarrassing moments that come up 
on every, being every like day. every day. Oh god, yeah. <laughs> I would I imagine mean, every day in the military, there's something that happens that you just have to chuck. Like, out. I'm curious to hear, like, maybe Katie, you went through some, but I'm curious to hear, like, what are kind of like the outlandish, like kind of embarrassing moments you might have had, like, whether it's on your deployments or, you know, just being commissioned right now. Oh, yeah. Um, just to prevent myself from incriminating, you know, my fellow, <laughs> my fellow lieutenants. No, I'm just <laughs> but um, so my first platoon were uh, fuelers. So, you know, when you join the military, you take the ASVAB test and you score a certain range and then you get to pick what your specialty is when you enter the military. Mm -hmm. And of course, the Army needs all range of skills, but uh, stereotypically, fuelers are not always known for being um, Einstein, let's just say, right? And they're they're more, you know, hardworking and come from different backgrounds. Yeah. Dan can tell you they're real stuff. <laughs> but um, some of the some of the things I remember it's like classic silver stories. So if you got a family emergency and you needed to leave your deployment or they just needed to get um, news across, they would send a Red Cross message, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember at some point one of my friends got a Red Cross message that his soldier needed to go home because his wife had a severe head injury from falling off of a dancing pole. And we were all like, holy crap, <laughs> no, not a car accident, but a dancing <laughs> and I'm like, pole. this is just classic <laughs> silver stories right there. <laughs> you're like, you come off a convoy and you're happy you didn't get blown up that day. And you come into the admin tent, the S1, you know, and that's the kind of stuff that you're dealing with. You're like, oh my God, what your, is going on? Your wife, Cinnamon, fell off the pole today at Cheetos <laughs> and we, we, we need you to come home and take care of her. What was so funny about that is that's exactly, I guarantee you the process that somebody went through was like, this is funny. I at least have to put in there that they fell off a dancing pole, but I don't want to not put that in there. Yeah. How do I say it without saying it? Right? Yeah, exactly. Oh man. Um, so obviously, um, I think you recently told us you just hit 18 years, uh, this summer, correct? That's right. So what has kind of been the major takeaway that you've, you know, you've learned so far in your extensive military career? Wow. That's a big question. Um, I mean, the takeaway is I think that the military is such a good representation of America kind of Mm -hmm. overall. And Mm -hmm. if you're looking for the perfect kind of, you walk into a military unit, just take one platoon away and say it had 50 people in it, it looks like America, right? It sounds like America, it feels like America. And so I think that, you know, as we have become increasingly divided as a country in the last couple of years, yeah. um, I think the military is trying very hard to still hold on to that kind of apolitical nature. You know, we're all inclusive. It's diverse, not on purpose, right? It just is diverse because it works and it looks like America. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we need to make sure the military kind of stays like that and and is representative of everyone um, and doesn't kind of play to, to one side or another so that we maintain the trust of the American people going forward because, mm-hmm. you know, as China and, you know, Russia and continue to kind of amass power either economically or uh, militarily, politically, you know, we need to make sure that our Department of Defense still remains the envy of all these countries. And we do that by maintaining the trust of the American people, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
so I think that we just need to be very, very careful about that going forward. And, you know, everything from the pull of Afghanistan to vaccines and things like that recently, it's just, it, ha- it makes me feel a little bit uneasy because mm-hmm. that's just stuff we never talked about. You know, you smoke and joke and you talk about who you voted for kind of when you're in a convoy or something like that. But at the end of the day, none of that ever mattered. You know, when you're sitting at the defect or you're coming off a mission. And I think it's really important that, that we maintain that. Do you think this huge divide of, of I don't want to get political, but I, this just came in my head and I feel like it's an interesting conversation for maybe someone of your level. Do you think that this kind of mass divide of America where you see people that aren't supporting military that are slandering men and women that are, you know, enlisting or commissioning. I think this all stems from social media. Like, because if you think back to like the earlier, you know, days of the war and all that, we were so patriotic as a country. We were so patriotic, you know, to support our veterans and support our troops. And now you've kind of got like this massive divide. Um, what are kind of your thoughts on that? And And I'm assuming, like I said, I feel like it does come from social media pulling people one way or another and they're seeing certain articles or certain things about veterans or the military as a whole. Yeah. I mean, I think social media is, you know, a a huge problem. It's also helpful in some ways, but I think that that's definitely been the largest contributor to, to dividing us. Right. And I also think it's just as the wars went on for 20 years, you know, the American Mm -hmm. public became less invested, Mm -hmm. you know, emotionally. um, It's just, the last story on the news, if it was on the news at all. And there just wasn't this drive to kind of, I mean, people say support the troops and, you know, you give a dollar to a certain organization and things like that, but it just became kind of a cliche, you know? Um, it became our everyday lives. It was for 20 years. Like right, I even forgot right. about it. I mean, I was so used to just knowing that we had presence in the Middle East and that was it. Well, I mean, that was again, my original intention kind of behind the book is mm-hmm. I, I I wanted people to remember that it's been 20 years of war and that there have been continuous service, like continuous boots on the ground, people who have served overseas and it's continuous and they didn't go away. They're still there. There's still people serving overseas and still fighting overseas. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it's, it's been unfortunate with what happened in Afghanistan. But the, the one thing that I will say about it, the fact that it hit the news cycle is it did make people remember and realize that people have been serving for the last 20 years mm-hmm. and that that level of unity i felt like started coming back and um yeah so i've definitely been re-encouraged the last couple of months there's been a lot of really good things that have happened even even with the bad things that have happened in afghanistan i think a lot of good has still come from it yeah. and um my hope is that the conversation continues and that people can, you know, continue to share their story. I, you know, I, I do hope that you guys turn your emails into a, into a book and do something like that. I think it would be incredible. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. It's it, it. I agree. People have become more divided and, um, I think the veteran community, the military community is a perfect example of how you can dispel every narrative that's out there as long as you have a common mission, you're going to be united because you're there for each other. And um, I think that's something that the, the message the American people need to hear. And it needs to come from veterans and it needs to come from service members. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's a real beauty in having you don't want this homogenous thought out there. You don't want all mm-hmm. the military thinking the same way or voting the mm-hmm. same way. You know, I mean, 
that that's the goodness of it. And it's just reminding people of that. I think that's important. Yeah. And it's, you know, not trying to change someone's opinion. You know, we can all be friends and think differently. And that was always yeah. okay because we were, you know, pursuing one mission. And I think now that, you know, the missions have kind of died down, it's difficult to figure out, you know, what is our, our place in the world as the military? You know, what, what is the common mm-hmm. enemy? It's really easy to come together when you have a common enemy. Yeah. Um, yep. and, and when you don't, I think we're all kind of, especially the veteran community is struggling. You know, what did that mean? What What's, what's next, right? Well, I, I wish like, you know, civilians like me could almost find that one mission that we're going after. Mm-hmm. Like, what is that? You know, like maybe we can figure out, set our differences aside, go back to kind of the older days where you can say what's on your mind and it's not going to offend everybody. It's not going to like split you guys apart. You guys can respect that you're your own person and have different beliefs, different religious backgrounds, you know, different political stances. But it's almost trying to find with that said, what is that one mission that we can all push towards and, you know, and unite on that? Well, yeah, I think that's the difficult part. I mean, you had the Cold War and that was easy, right? For yeah. 40 years, everyone was like, hey, Russia's bad, communism's bad. And everyone kind of got that, right? Then you had and 9-11. Then you had global war and terrorism for 20 years. And I think now yeah. we're like, okay, we know China's bad in a way, right? I mean, it's an adversary. Mm-hmm. Um, you also need to work with them. Um, but that's... I think that, you know, in the national defense community, we're struggling to get that narrative out there. What what yeah. do we mean by yeah. the United States competing with China? Is this kind of a space race type of situation? Is this a, it's, it need, I, I'm hoping that when the national defense strategy comes out next year and um, the administration talks about, you know, what our priorities are as a country, mm-hmm. that maybe that will help. Um, and it can't just be war. Like it, it can't no, just be absolutely. war that's bringing us together because that seems to be the pattern. Yeah, and that's why I'm I'm thinking, you know, is it more something aligned the tech race, you know, mm. things like that that yeah. kind of unite us. Hey, we're the most advanced country in the world. Let's let's remind ourselves of that. You know, let's get kids involved in tech, or you know, are we going to be known for the arts or just something that is going to bring us all together? And so, you know, mm-hmm. kids in school kind of know that's what I'm going towards. Yeah. No, I, I think that's that's critically important. And I, I think, uh, Bo, you had a, a really great point. And I, I think um, when events like 9-11 happen, everybody's united oh, because yeah. they're like, we know we got to go find the people responsible for it. Mm-hmm. And so it almost takes another global event or global effort or something to happen that would unite us. But, you know, the the one thing that has been, I don't know, that has concerned me more than anything is that there is a global event going on, but it seems like it's dividing us, which is frustrating to yeah. see with the pandemic. And so I don't know. And, and it's probably because it's a, it's a long span event, right? It didn't like a bunch of people didn't just get COVID and then, you know, some people died and then boom, it's gone. No, it's, it's lasting years. And so, so people are having a hard time, like figuring out how to process that. And I think that's why it's dividing people more. I think it does, unfortunately, going to be it, it's going to be one of those events where like something happens, like a meteor is about to come strike Earth or something like that. And then we're like, you know, we're going to have Armageddon. We're going to have a bunch of misfits go to space or something. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I totally agree. And I mean, yeah. you guys both make really good points with this. It's like, hey, we I don't want to say the pandemic is an opportunity, but it should have been an opportunity mm-hmm. to, you yeah. know, 
increase investment in biotech and have the healthcare industry and yeah. you know all the stuff yep. coming together as as a world right as a, as the globe and putting the smartest people into I, Pfizer or Moderna whatever hey figure this out help us that should have been a uniting thing and for some reason it hasn't and we, we have climate change on the horizon too yeah I think yeah it's probably the next the next big thing and that that should be uniting us in so many ways and the mass migration that's going to come and just trying to figure that out and it's not a military problem it's you know how do we come together as a society to start to fighting this kind of- not only that but i think i read a recent article where it said that uh china was on the road to becoming the next major superpower by like 2035 that was kind of their goal was basically to take over america's position and well, depending on who you talk to, they already are trying to do that. I think they, I think they, have, the largest, they have the largest uh, Navy, naval fleet. They have more ships than the U.S. They uh, I think they have the, correct me if I'm wrong on any, any of this, Katie, but um, I think they have the largest military as well. Hmm. Um, so there's a lot of things. Now, their capabilities are not as advanced yet, but mm-hmm. they're getting there um, as the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're right on with what you were saying, but the... I listened to a great um, seminar the other day by the Center for Naval Analysis, and people can look this up. It's all open source, but it they were talking about reimagining defense, and a lot of it was focused on China. Mm-hmm. And um, it was the guy that wrote The Kill Chain, mm. um, which is kind of understand, decide, kill. And it's not just about the kill chain. It's about, you know, you need to understand the problem before you make a decision. And then once you make a decision, you need to act on it, not so much, you know, going into a house and killing a terrorist. Yeah. But mm-hmm. the other guy was um, a strategist guy, Dr. Carter Malkazian. And they, I mean, it was scary when they were talking about China, you mm-hmm. know, back to the Navy thing. They said that at this point, China can probably build ships faster than the U S could build the munitions to strike them. Wow. Yep. That's scary. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, just things like that. And we're, we're, we're so behind on that. And you know, a lot of it's just, how we do and this is in more on the government side of the house when it comes to just our procurement systems yeah. and you know mm-hmm. the bureaucratic nature of that and trying to figure out how to blend it with you know commercial side of the house and being serious about this you yeah. know getting yeah. after this and this is not just a government problem we need to all come together on this well the the military industrial complex is talked about all the time about like how it's how it's this horrible thing and i i can agree in some ways that Yes, there have been built incentives to um, for companies to sell single-use products, or to um, that the government's going to purchase, or to um, put these ridiculous margins on components that the government needs, and all these other things. And like they have an incentive to stay in war, but at the same time, it could be restructured to benefit, and it, and it creates a lot of jobs and a lot of different things that that happen, but especially when you're talking about China and you're talking about how fast they can build things and how quickly they can develop. Like mm-hmm. if we take our foot off the gas, it can be a very serious problem and mm-hmm. it's already starting to build that way. And um, yeah, I hope, I hope that when uh, the national events strategy comes out next year, I, I agree. I hope more people start paying attention and it is in the news a little bit. Like usually it makes its little cycle here and there. So people are hearing it, but I, I hope people will start realizing how serious it is. Yeah, and I mean, it's, you know, back to kind of Bo's point earlier, not everything can be a war, right? So no. China, you know, we we have to somehow 
um, compete with them so they don't kind of take over as a preeminent superpower mm. so soon while also working with them on things like climate change. I mean, yeah. it's their use of fossil fuels and all the increased people driving cars there. I mean, that's what's driving this. And if we can't, you know, hold two competing thoughts in our head, like, hey, you guys steal intellectual property, you are bad, we need to figure out how to do this. Also saying, hey, we need to have a climate summit with you, President Xi, and you need to get half your cars off the road or make them go electric by 2040. I mean, we have to figure out how to do both of those things at yeah. the same time. Yeah, man, that's got to be difficult. You, you know what it is? Is they invented TikTok to distract us <laughs> from them built from them building all their ships and getting ahead of us. That's exactly it. Yeah. yeah. Five like, years of our nation's brightest teenagers. They're like, hey, you know, instead of inventing spaceships. People love to dance. Let's just send this out and uh, you know, we'll distract them like that for about five years. Oh, it works. Man. That's quite a strategy. <laughs> Um, so I want to, I want to talk a little bit about how we got connected with you. Um, mm. obviously we, um, you know, General Votel wrote the forward for our book. Um, I've known him since he was the, uh, regimental commander when I first got to, uh, second range battalion. I, I think he was the second regimental commander right after, um, I got there, but, um, <clears throat> how, how did your relationship like with him evolve, especially, um, you know, working at, uh, 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 special operations command and then CENTCOM, things like that. Like, how did that begin? Yeah, absolutely. So I served in Jordan for three years, kind of in, in 2012 to 2015. And at that time he, um, he was a JSOC commander. So I think that, you know, we ran into each other a couple of times when he would come through the embassy in Jordan. Mm -hmm. But I really met him um, when I was serving in the UK after that. I was embedded on the British Joint Staff, and we were working on a plan um, for Syria with the UK, um, us, and a couple of other countries. And he came over, and I actually was briefing on behalf of the Brits since I was embedded on their staff. And... Um, the briefing went really well and I kind of talked to his staff afterwards and I got a call maybe, I don't know, three or four weeks later, I was in a meeting and I just had a post-it note on my desk that said, um, his exo at the time, Colonel Oslin called and he wants to set up a phone call, uh, with General Votel. And I was like, oh my God, what the hell have I done wrong? Like, that's <laughs> pretty significant disciplinary action there coming from the SECOM commander, you know, <laughs> to yeah. a major, um, and so I called Colonel Oslin back and he's like, hey, Joe Motel wants to interview you to be his aide. He's going to call from the plane tonight. I'm like, holy crap. Okay. Um, so we ended up talking. The call went really well. And I flew back to CENTCOM and did an interview with them. And then he hired me on to be his aide for his last, his last year um, in the military, really. So his last mm -hmm. year at CENTCOM and then yeah. before he retired. And it was you know, the best job you could ever have. It's just a strategic education every day. Um, he's a great you know, guy too. World together, and he's just the best leader on the planet, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. bar none and not biased at all. But, um, and, you know, got to know his wife, Michelle, who's an incredible supporter of the military and veterans very well. And we're still in very close touch. You know, they're godparents to one of my kids. Wow. And Joe and I work on some writing projects together. And he's just, he's the leader we need right now in the military. Um, he's, he's just great. Um, and kind of, you know, not only was he, you know, Dan working with him, soldier, 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 right. I mean, yeah. just one of the first guys out of the plane to Afghanistan, so humble, like mm -hmm. a true warrior, 
but he also just thinks big. He brought women into special forces, into combat arms, you know, hired a female aide for the first time. Like he just, he, he gets what we need as a Department of Defense, as the government, he gets where we're going and, and he does that quietly without a lot of fanfare. And um, I think we all learn a lot from him. Well, he's, he's got such a, uh, a kind of a, like a quiet disposition, mm. but he's very like matter of fact at the same time. He, I mean, he's a general, like if anyone can picture what a general is, I mean, he has that to the T, right. but he's also like kind of, you've got this like hidden humor with him. Mm-hmm. Like I remember meeting him in DC in his office to take his photo for the book after he wrote the forward. I remember walking in, you know, he's, he's dressed professionally. He's got suit and tie and all that, but I could have swore he had like these like colorful socks and he kicked his feet up and he was <laughs> like, yeah, just, Hey, sit down, Bo. And he's like talking to me and I'm like, you know, you're kind of intimidated <laughs> at first because you're like, I'm even a civilian that's kind of like standing, you know, looking in the eyes of this four star general. And so I'm just trying to like, yes, sir, you know, be professional and talk to him. And then but he's kind of like letting the edge off a little bit and being humorous and, and talking to me and smiling the whole time. And he's just got a good energy to him. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's, he's actually really funny and yeah. sarcastic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's the youngest of like eight boys or something. That's so crazy. I think that wow. that probably. <laughs> Um, contributed his personality because he he's just very very patient mm-hmm. and then you know when you need to release the hounds he does it like surgically almost mm-hmm. um the, that's the biggest lesson i learned from him was was patience you know we went through a mm-hmm. lot his last year with um president trump like tweeting our way out of syria and yeah. Yeah. very very strategic problems you know and I, my desk was right outside his office, you know, as aide, and so I'd go in and out. And I remember the first couple of months, some big things happened, and I would go in and kind of like, "Oh my God, can you believe this, sir?" Like, da 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 da. And he kind of looked at me like, "Calm down, like this is this is all going to be okay." And you know, it was after that I learned, like, "Wow, that that's how you got to where you are now." It's just this this patience and prudence to kind of think through problems logically and mm-hmm. then use words, you know, not yeah, that yeah. or the other. Yeah, it's definitely. Um... I, I, I respect him for, for so many different things, but definitely that, uh, it's easy when you're at the top to forget about those basic principles you learn in leadership to like think pot or was it think pause act, um, or pause think act. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's really important, especially for people at the top to do that. And, uh, I was actually listening to his, uh, 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 his interview on the green notebook. Um, and they actually asked about that situation in, in Syria and you know, what his response to that was. And I thought he had a really good, uh, I don't want to quote exactly what he said, but I, I remember he had a really good response and he was like, yeah, I was, I was more or less frustrated with the situation, but we knew, um, what we needed to do. And, and he had a really good response. Um, and I can imagine being there, it would have been one of those moments where you could easily get very, pissed off and frustrated because mm. there's a lot of, you know, um, relationship building that was there, uh, with the Kurds and everything in, in Syria and, and to see it basically the rug pulled from under you via tweet is, a uh, is a difficult thing to process. Yeah. And he, you've probably heard it on that same podcast, but he has, um, a thing called command and feedback. You know, I think he's learned a little bit of from general Mattis, but he kind of took it to the next level almost. And, center his communication style around that and mm-hmm. so command and feedback is a little bit different than the traditional um command and control what you think of in the military you know a decision is made at the top and it filters all the way down mm-hmm. um and his you know this 
this isn't PhD level math by any means, but his was, you know, communication comes from the top, it goes to the bottom, and then you want the feedback from the bottom yeah. back to the top. So you have this kind of constant OODA loop of decision making because you are understanding, you know, how they interpreted the guidance from the lowest level, and then you use that to slowly adjust. Um, and then he always talks about just a number of kind of things that you should do that contribute to command and feedback. And one of the um, foremost ones is just telling the truth, right? Mm -hmm. Avoiding the indefinite maybe. So when this stuff happened with Syria, you know, when we had to tell General Maslum, it, he just told him, right? He, he just told him the facts and it wasn't all this like colorful language around it. And I think that that's how we garnered so much respect from um you know, other foreign military leaders was they mm -hmm. knew he would tell them the truth right away. And yeah. they're, you know, and no, if no is the answer, just, just say no. Right. And it's it, purgatory, you know, the, the period in between a yes and a no is always the worst. Just give me a no. <laughs> yeah. To know. Yep. And he was really good at that. I think more people just need to be that, that matter of fact, like we kind of beat around the bush to be polite. And I understand it to a certain degree, but I think that if everyone started being more like that, it would start to retrain us a little bit to be more accepting to having those matter of fact situations of a yes or no. Well, a lot of people too try and justify their decision before they give their answer. Mm -hmm. Like <clears throat> to, to Katie's point, instead of just saying yes or no, and then having a conversation about it, a lot of people like to say, you know, I've been looking at this and I've been thinking about how I'm going to, you know, respond to this. And I've been thinking about this and this and this is affecting that and this. And then ultimately we decided no. It's opposite. Yeah. They flip it. They try and sugarcoat it. Yeah. But you need to just tell people up front and then have a conversation around it. I always. Yeah, that's important. I take it better that way. Like, for instance, let's just say if it's, a, you know, um, you you basically sign up for a job. You're, you're applying for a job. I'd rather somebody be like, no, and this is the reason why. Mm -hmm. And then you can kind of fix those reasons why, or you can find out what it was that the, the answer no came from or yes in that regard. So I think that that's, I deal with it better that way, but I don't know if everyone's like that. Yeah. I think most people just, they all, we, we all want to improve and get, you know, better at anything that we're doing. So mm -hmm. tell them, tell you what you're doing wrong. Right. Yeah. With with obviously you going in as early as 2003 and, you know, we just marked 20 year anniversary of not only 9-11, but the global war on terror. What have kind of been the main takeaways that you've learned from that? You know, you've obviously had, a, had an extensive career leading up and you're still active to the, this point. What what are kind of some of your experiences or takeaways that you've had from that? Yeah, I think that if you look over kind of the last 20 years, um, like the big lessons you learn as a strategic planner, you know, what are our political objectives when we go into a place, right? And mm -hmm. that's how you kind of, in the planning world, we call them ends, ways, and means, right? What are the ends we're trying to achieve? And, you know, at what point, if we haven't achieved them, should we stop moving towards that? Um, or when we actually have gotten to a good enough place, you know, kind of let's be done. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's kind of what we've struggled with as a nation and as the Department of Defense the last 20 years. And not, you know, to do a post-mortem on people's decisions politically mm -hmm. because it's spanned all parties and it's yeah. spanned 20 years. But yeah. I think we kind of um, fumbled our way through some of these things, right? And we kind of had 21-year wars. And yeah. I think next time that we, you know, go to commit such a huge amount of blood and treasure, 
for the U.S. taxpayer. Um, and it's not just the military, it's, you know, it's as a nation. Mm-hmm. We need to be very clear about what we're trying to achieve. And yeah. I think that, you know, there's all the three branches of government and, you know, Congress at some point needs to, to you know, there are the oversight and ask, hey, what are we still doing there? Mm-hmm. Um, and just, just be, you know, back to our points about make the main thing the main thing. Let's talk about facts and um, just be very clear-eyed, clear-headed about what we are doing when yeah. we commit this level of investment. I, I don't know if you guys can answer it because this is kind of a question for both you, Katie, and Dan. But obviously, both of you doing deployments and, and you know, being in the military, did you, for one, think that this war was going to go on for as long as it did? <laughs> and do you think that it was planned to be 20 years? Uh, I mean, four presidencies. The, the, the simplest answer is no and no. <laughs> I like those. <laughs> um, no, I think for me, and this is me me personally, but, uh, you know, I joined in 2006. So I was right when <clears throat> kind of, I, I guess, uh, right before the, the major surge in 2008. But it, there was a significant ramp up. It was slowly starting to ramp up. And um, when we were drawing down then my fourth deployment i went to afghanistan we were drawing down iraq we had very limited presence we were starting to remove a lot of people this would have been 2009 2010 i was like okay well you know clearly um so you got a massive plane flying over you yeah yeah i hear that (laughs) yeah (laughs) all good um but yeah you know i saw the transition to afghanistan and then when we were in afghanistan i was like all right well there's still clearly a reason for us to be here um Taliban are still a significant threat in the region. We were doing a lot of things with Pakistan, trying to figure out like how we were going to work with them. Uh, Osama bin Laden was still around. Um, But then after, you know, Osama bin Laden was killed, I was like, all right, you know, we're going to give the country back over to the Afghans any year, like Mm -hmm. any time now. And I truthfully thought, I was like, this war is going to be done by, you know, 2013, 2014. Mm. I was like, we'd be gone. So, no, I did not see it lasting, you know, another uh, 10 years after my last deployment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I agree with both of those. No and no. And it's, you know, I don't think anyone ever sets out to kind of make poor decisions. And we probably won't be able to analyze this for another, you know, 10 or 15 years when it's a little bit less emotional. But there were definitely some points that we should have probably off ramped, Mm -hmm. you know, and it. We stay because it's a combination of, you know, as Americans, we want to help people. Yeah. And so maybe the mission changed and shifted, but we still thought we were doing a good job, right? There was, we were, <laughs> we were bringing prosperity to either Iraq or Afghanistan, you mm-hmm. know, women's rights. There were things that were getting better, yeah. right? So I think anytime you do see incremental progress, you're very hesitant to stop making incremental progress. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just making the hard decision and, Kind of back to that podcast I was talking about with um, China and those two guys. One of the things that they said that kind of struck me was, um, I don't forget the quote, but it was essentially like prioritization um, is the key to strategy. And that is being able to mm-hmm. say no. Mm. So you have to be able to say no to certain things or you have not prioritized. So if you have a list of, you know, one to 10, and you can only do three things. That means saying no to the other seven. Yeah. Not like it's it back to this indefinite maybe thing, right? Um, and we haven't done that as a country. And that's everyone. That's the military. That's the taxpayers. That's Congress. Um, 
and so I think that, you know, going forward when we do have China climbing, you know, how are we climate change issues, mass migration, just all this stuff we're going to have to figure out as a country, you know, what we are going to invest in and it can't be everything. Right now we need to figure out one to tackle and then move to the next. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, and the, um, you know, I'm taking a step back a little bit, but I think this, this does uh, matter with like how we talk about this is it's always been my perspective and, and correct me if I'm wrong, especially um, working more on the strategy side of things, but it's always been that the U.S. government um, is who dictates policy. Yes, the DOD and, and other uh, defense players will obviously try and shape policy, but ultimately policies come from Congress and from the president then that policy has to be executed by the military. Mm. And often what you see is a lot of people get frustrated at what our military is doing. And it's not necessarily the decisions of the generals and even people at uh, major um, command centers and things like that. They're just getting a policy that's like, hey, this is your next mission. This is what you need to do. Figure out how to execute it. Yeah, and that goes back to kind of the apolitical nature of the military and why that's so important. You know, we really are just the executors. Um, mm -hmm. But that puts the the onus on just us as Americans, you know, yeah, we're, we're all citizens too. And it's it's holding our leadership and our representatives accountable and asking them, you know, what, what are our priorities as a nation? And then you use the military when you need to. You know, it's mm -hmm. diplomacy first and then you, you bring in defense when, when required. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, um, again something that has broadened my perspective and hopefully <clears throat> a lot of people will start realizing this is um, because our, our nation's been at war for 20 years, um, you know, in the global war on terror, we've really seen an, an, a, an adjustment in Congress. And um, it's, it's making me hopeful for the future. There are more veterans serving in Congress than ever before, except yeah. for, I think right after world war two. Um, so it's it's encouraging to see hopefully a lot more veterans do take office because we've seen it from the other side where we are the ones who have to mm -hmm. uh, execute policy. And I'm hoping that more veterans get into Congress can voice their opinion and, and say, look, we need to have a strategy and a fully executable strategy around this before making a, a rash decision or man, things would be so much better, like different too. that way to have people like that with leadership and yeah, and, and those I, roles. Well, and the other thing about veterans and, and no veteran is, is, you know, has, has, uh, you know, completely clean hands, but at the same time, veterans come from military experience. They don't come from industry and yes, you do need some industry leaders as well, but their pockets aren't lined by businesses. You know, they're not, they're not coming from a political perspective or a business perspective. They're coming from a I guess from that service perspective of like, they want to continue to serve their nation. And I think that's the more important perspective to have mm -hmm. as somebody serving in Congress, whether it's in the house or the Senate. Yeah. I mean, I think if you, you know, after world war two, when so many people, you know, the greatest generation, right. Mm -hmm. And then the 50 years that followed that, regardless of who was president, our country was pretty connected, yeah. you know, like families all share different political parties and it wasn't a big deal. It was kind of just a, you know, who you check to vote for on election day. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think it's probably worth a study at some point that, you know, is it, that connection that people had, that camaraderie that they felt to the centralized mission, 
now that there's this big gap, right, of people that, that didn't feel that, is that what is kind of contributing to the divisive nature of the country as well, that, right? That, so, yeah. and it kind of goes back to Dan's point, I think, you know, the Congress is supposed to represent all Americans, and we definitely need veterans there, because I yep. think they're good at kind of crossing the aisle and, yep. you know, doing just a, a central goal to, to support us as citizens, not necessarily a political arm. Um, and so hopefully that can maybe get us back to being all centrist, you know, at heart and things like that. That's kind of the sad part is like what you just said kind of reminds me of like, you know, me growing up, I had family that were on both sides. And I remember it was just, it was like a joking matter. We'd all be at like a family get together and half my family is voting Republican. The half other half is voting Democrat. And I'd be like, who are you going to vote for this year? I'm voting for that. Oh, you're going to vote for them. Ah, okay. And then it would like be like a joke. Like no one ever took it like crazy, like seriously. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope we get back to that. Yeah, yeah. me too. Well, that's, um, you know, for somebody who's spanned, you know, 18 years, 18 year career so far, I know you're getting towards where your career could, you know, you could mm -hmm. retire. Um, are you starting to think about, you know, what's next after uh, military service and what you want to do? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, I absolutely love the army. And so, you know, when I'm at work, I'm kind of like, I'm never going to stop doing this. This mm -hmm. is, this is for me. I really love this. Um, and then when I'm, you know, having a glass of wine at night or a cup of coffee in the morning and I'm reading news or just a magazine, I'm like, wow, there's, there's so much, much else out there in the world yeah. that mm -hmm. would be, would be cool to contribute to, you know? And I think that the military is one place that people can contribute, but there are so many other avenues to do that. And there's a part of me that would be excited to, to do something else after I am done. You know, I love it now and I, I don't know when I'll make that transition, but you know, I've been writing ideas and notebooks for years about starting something with um, women and strategy. And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, so I, after my kind of lieutenant captain time when I became the war planner and strategist, I've had some cool jobs. I totally lucked out, you know, luck and timing for everything. But um, people ask, you know, how have you been successful as a planner and strategy strategist? And I think a lot of it actually comes down to kind of skills women have mm -hmm. inherently and it's relationship building, um, multitasking, you know, planning. We, we kind of are, just at heart planners, you know, mm -hmm. when it comes to family stuff or a lot better know, than us. meal, planning a vacation, a grocery list, a birthday party. I mean, it, that sounds very different than planning awards, but it's really not, you know, mm -hmm. what are my resources? <laughs> what am I trying to accomplish and how do I do this? And I think that women are really good at that. And so I kind of, I've had a little dream of getting women strategists, veterans together with mm. other government organizations. So people that have served in the Intel communities or for USAID, State Department, and kind of coming up with this like high powered tiger team of like 10 women that we can kind of fly around the world and go into countries that are recovering, you know, after war. So you go into Afghanistan and we mm. talk to women and men about strategy and planning and government formation and just doing it from a different lens. Um, and a lot of that is, is built on relationships. And so hopefully I'll start that one day. We'll that, see. That's really cool. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I, you know, I think it, it needs that. And we, um, two, two things, first of all, I'm glad you're, you've already started thinking about what mm -hmm. you're going to do next. And I especially am happy 
that you're doing something that's continuing to serve others because mm -hmm. that's that's a common thing I've heard from many veterans is um, including myself during transition or after you initially get out it's always like seeking the next thing and figure trying to figure it out and uh you're never going to find what was perfect in the military you're never going to find exactly what you're missing um after you take your uniform off but um that desire to serve other people or serve a community or serve an organization whatever it is um I think that's what's created a lot of veterans to to be successful when they mm. do take off their uniform. And so it's really cool to hear, hear that you're doing that. And then to hear um, how you're looking at serving, I think that's yeah. an incredible, noble, um, powerful, and, and incredibly effective, especially somebody who comes with your background um, that would have a lot of benefit to, to every nation that we've, you know, the U.S. has connected to at all. And, I, you know, I've said this to multiple people especially who were like trying to reflect on you know especially the withdrawal from afghanistan is is to remind people remind afghans that look this was a policy that had to be enacted we had to withdraw but that does not reflect our beliefs individually on what we believe uh, mm -hmm. of afghans like we we are still in support obviously clearly a lot of veterans have stepped up and trying to get people out of the country still um but i think it's it's important to continue to share that message um outside of the government yeah i mean there's there's a lot of people out there that want to contribute you know mm -hmm. not just in the military i mean you know look at Bo, and it's it's trying to find organizations that you can connect to i think that i mean where i've seen people struggle the most you know kind of what you're talking about dan is in the transition period so mm -hmm. when we're war planning you know we always talk about transitions are the most vulnerable time in between yep. like a unit rip right or when a policy changes, something like that, that is when a unit is the most vulnerable. You know, mm -hmm. that's when something dangerous happens. And I think it's the actual transition period for veterans that is the most, you know, that makes them the most vulnerable and, and kind of dangerous in some ways. Yeah. Um, and I saw, you know, I mean, my husband had an incredible career and I saw him really struggle, you know, the last couple of years until he really landed where he wanted to. Mm -hmm. My dad, I remember, I mean, it's no matter your rank, no matter how long you served, I think that it is always going to be very difficult to replicate how it feels to be in the military. Everything yeah. from routine to uniform to feeling part of something bigger to having, you know, focus on a daily basis. All the stuff that we pretend we don't like when we're in it, we miss it when we're out, right? And it's, I don't think it's necessarily finding something to replicate all of that. It's finding something to replicate the feeling that it yep. gives you, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I'm sorry, uh, I'll let you say your piece in a second too. Um, but, uh, that's why I talk about in the book, the third, third portion of what I talk about, cause people talk about all the time, you know, taking off your uniform, mm -hmm. that transition, being away from the organization, it's such like a, an empty feeling, like you're trying to fill it with something, but that, that portion I feel like gets said all the time. And, and yes, you're right. You got to find the thing that's going to give you the same feeling, but in order to feel that in order to understand what that feeling is the third portion is that self-reflection and really looking at your service as a t you know in in total and understanding like what it meant to you what it meant to your family what it meant to your friends uh and trying to find the things that are going to again you're not going to find a direct replication of it but you can find something that's similar to it or that gives you the same sort of feelings mm -hmm. and that's why oftentimes service in some sort does fulfill a lot of those same feelings. 
Yeah, it does. And I think it's, you know, they try to, I feel like, push people into certain industries, right? You always Mm -hmm. see at the career fairs and everything, people getting pushed into like middle management or, you know, some big corporation or going into finance or things that seem similar, but they're totally not. You know, I mean, you would think to replicate a feeling of like what we do, you want to get more into kind of teaching or, you know, something that connects you to others. So mm-hmm. when you go home at night, I mean, and I think that the arts is, is lost, right? So I was talking to a girlfriend the other day and she runs a big public relations firm for directors and, you know, the creative community. And she said they never get, you know, veterans kind of trying to come into those organizations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that there's so many veterans out there that would love that, you know, that have artistic backgrounds yeah. or we're in drama or, you know, arts and, I think that we need to just kind of open the aperture for industries or career fields that veterans can go into afterwards. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. And I was just going to highlight uh, what you and Dan were just talking about, because I think this is an important topic before we wrap on, you know, transition is, is I personally would love to see more veterans acting in Hollywood or mm. becoming like successful photographers, you know, like my, like myself yeah. or like, you know, selling their art or, creating books. And, and I said it during the event um, that we were all at, at the National Veterans Memorial and Museum. And I've said it before on other podcasts, but it took me a while to figure this out. But I truly believe that when you start finding a way to help others through your passion is when you truly find success. And I think that goes with, oh, yeah. with anything and with anybody. And I think that for veterans that are transitioning, find what you're passionate about, find what you love to do, find out how that can help others and I think you're kind of like on the right path, but it's, it's, it's yeah, a grind. Yeah, it's like, you know, reporting and, and stuff like that. Like, I think there's some Dan Lamoth or what a reporter, I can't remember who he works for now, maybe the Washington Post or something, but he was a veteran. And when he mm-hmm. writes articles, they're just different. They yeah. feel different. Yeah. You know, he kind of gets it rather than kind of more of the punditry that comes from someone that's just a little bit disconnected. And veterans should, there's great writers out there. Like why, why are they becoming the war correspondents or the reporters on TV rather than someone that's trying to translate on their behalf. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and that's such an important thing. And, you know, I, I talked about the politics, but I agree all areas of our society really should have a percentage of veterans involved. Yeah. You know, um, I think it's one, 1% of, uh, of our population is combat veterans from the GWAT, which doesn't seem like a lot. And it, it, it's correct. It's not that much, but it's actually more than a lot. A lot of people realize, I think. And if you had 1% of reporters being veterans or 1% of photographers being veterans yeah. or 1% of Hollywood actors being veterans, I think you would see a completely different society. And I, I mm-hmm. don't know if it would be you know better or more united or whatever it is, but just to have a completely different, more worldview um, brought to the workplace. And I think that's an important thing. And, and not to mention the leadership, the, you know, the drive, the work ethic, the, uh, teamwork ability, all those things that veterans bring to the table. And, um, I would love to see more veterans step up and, and get outside of the traditional roles. Like you said, those, you know, middle management or finance or, Mm -hmm starting up shirt companies or uh, yeah. <laughs> do something yeah. like different. And yeah. I, f- I forgot who um, I forgot. I'm going to butcher this, but recently and Katie, you might've heard it. Maybe if you guys did the tour through the museum or maybe not, but 
uh, Bill Butler and Andy, who you know worked together and helped run that museum along with General Ferreter, I've heard them a couple times say that you know either they had like all of us kind of raise our hand. They'd, they'd ask three questions. It would be, who here is a veteran? You know, some people would raise their hand. Who here like knows a veteran or has family that are veterans? And then another group of people would raise their hands. And then the third one was, who here like works with a veteran? Mm -hmm. By the time that third question comes around, everybody has raised their hand at least once. So I think that for a lot of people listening, oh, wow. you're much more connected to veterans than you think you are. Yeah. And even though it's only 1%, I think all of us have a connection to veterans yeah. or we should all strive to find a way to integrate them more into our society. Like what you said, Dan, with 1% being actors, 1% being in a photography, 1% being chefs, whatever, you yeah. know, like finding more opportunities to integrate them into society and help them transition. I feel like is what we should really be striving for. Mm -hmm. Well, and talking about it as well. I think that, you know, there's the, thank you for your service thing, but I always appreciate when, you know, people take the next step, right? So yeah. I'm running the grocery store on the way home. I'm still in my uniform. You have one guy say, thank you for your service. But then the cashier is like, oh my, you know, great uncle served in World War II. You know, did you know mm -hmm. that? <laughs> but it's just, you know, you, you kind of start telling stories about that and yeah. it makes the veteran feel connected. It makes that person feel connection. I mean, I think everyone at heart is just looking for a human connection. And if, mm -hmm. You know, a veteran is what brings people together. There's that's a beautiful thing, you know. And so instead of just saying thank you for your service, ask that follow-up question. And yeah. inevitably you'll find something in common. And I think that's kind of what we need to do as a society. Well, what what you just said is so important. We all want to feel connected. Like yeah. I don't care if you're a veteran or you're a civilian, it's just human nature that we all want to feel connected. And even with people that are just like, I love to be independent, I don't care about people, I want to go live off the land there's still right. something about being around another human being that you relate to or that you can just conversate with. Mm -hmm. And I feel like with that said, we need to do that next step forward of just besides thanking people for their service is it's kind of like, where are you working right now? What do you do for a living? You know, find yeah. out who they are as a person. And maybe if we can help employ more veterans or we can help connect them more, I think that that'll help bridge that gap between the two different societies of being a civilian and being a veteran. Well, and it, yeah. and that's a perfect point about why we talk about this book, why we do this podcast, all those different things, because I think, you know, especially the last, what I'll say 10 years of this war, I feel like the, the veteran has been stereotyped and we talk about this all the time mm -hmm. and the veteran has been kind of pushed into these certain categories. And it's, it's very defined of like, heavy PTSD or, um, you know, Captain America, or we talk about the bro vet, we talk about, you know, those typical categories, but veterans to our beginning of this conversation are a excellent representation of America. They come from all different backgrounds. They do all different things. They have all different sets of beliefs and understandings of the world. And we've all served in different areas of the world. We've all had a different you know, mm. uh, military experience. So to, to try and categorize veterans is, is really doing everybody a disservice. And so I agree. I think it needs to be, you know, when somebody tells me, thank you for your service, I, I typically respond with, it was my honor to serve. 
Mm. And because it was, it was like, it was my choice. I decided to serve. So I appreciate somebody saying thank you for your service. But at the same time, it was my honor to serve, you know, the country. Yeah. And, um, and that's everybody in the country. It doesn't matter if I agree with them or not. And, uh, I think if more people had that perspective, then you would see more unity. You would see more conversations. You would see more veterans coming out and telling their story and, things like that. You know, I didn't tell you about this, uh, yesterday, but this is a perfect opportunity to talk about it. Um, somebody messaged me on my Instagram last night and he, uh, he came to the event. Um, he Hmm. was not, he was not in the book, uh, but he came to the event at the, at the museum and, uh, he just basically thanked me, but he told me more or less his entire story. Um, but the, the biggest thing that he took away from it was like, prior to that event, I would have never told anybody my story. That's crazy. And he was like, you inspired me, you know, talk to my family, talk to my friends, things like that. And just tell them like the struggles I've been going through in transition and all that kind of stuff. And he was like, it's opened me up to realize what has been my struggle, like why I have been struggling. Mm -hmm. And I think that's again, going back to the transition a little bit, but, um, I think that's the important part is like more veterans need to step up. They need to tell their story. More people who are not veterans need to be open to having conversations with veterans and service members. Yeah. Yeah. And that was going to be my last point. And it's also to kind of flip that on its head. I think it's important that veterans talk to others about their story too. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not just, it's not a one way thing. Like we joined the military to protect our nation. Right. And that's protecting our citizens so it's important that we know who we're protecting and so i think a lot of times people get out and they're friends with other veterans and they you know they tell their stories and it's a little bit of an echo chamber and not that they're elite by any means or trying to be standoffish but i think it's just it's a little bit of a laziness factor and and you know not wanting to kind of a talk about themselves but b find out who the people are that we do go to war to defend right i mean it's just because someone didn't join the military doesn't mean that they don't want to be, you know, active members of society. And so I always have to remind myself of that. Like I'm not better because I signed up, you know, maybe they wanted to be a doctor. Maybe they wanted to be, you know, pick, pick a career. Yeah. And that's good. You know, we need all of those people. And I think that if we understand who we are defending, that brings us together as well. Uh, I get why some veterans do it. But like you said, I think it's a little bit of laziness, but also pride. And I Mm -hmm. think that what it comes down to is I think that, you know, when they get out, they're kind of like, these people are never going to understand me. So I'm not even going to bother to waste my time to tell my story. But you're pigeonholing. You're like pigeonholing yourself to never grow, to never get past what you experienced in your military career prior to that. So it's kind of like I get that there's a lot of civilians that won't ever understand you. But at the same time, if we're all trying to change that narrative and help civilians understand you, we need veterans to come forth and be open with sharing their story and having that conversation to be the first ones putting that foot in the door, because that's not only going to help you grow to obviously get those words out of your head and, and make them loud and make them known to people around you. But I think that's going to help you grow and it's going to help people around you understand you more. Well, and to, to flip it around the other way, a lot of civilians don't, understand veterans they don't know how to have those conversations and you know we've talked about multiple times and and some of the folks in the book about their experiences trying to have conversations and they're like 
you know, if you see blood, are you going to freak out on me? Like, yeah. are you going to shoot up this place? Like those dumb, ignorant comments. And it's, and it's, it's horrifying. And I get why veterans don't want to share their story because that's the other side of it. They won't understand. They won't get it. But, uh, unless you put it out there and you say, Hey, you know, if you ever want to ask me about my service, you know, feel free. Um, then people aren't going to know how to, but they're, they're just not going to ask. They're going to be like, Oh, it's cool. You serve, but that's it. You know? Yeah. This goes back to kind of Bo's point about, you know, 1% of actors being in veterans in Hollywood or directors or people that are in the creative space that Mm -hmm. we all kind of base our perceptions off of. Right. So, you know, post-World War II, everyone had been in the military, right? And so the characters on Mad Men were all veterans. Yeah, I mean, you look at this and it was just, that was a normal part of writing it into a script. And now it's like either a war movie, um, you know, a movie about a veteran who's shot up the place because he's upset, or it's just sad, right? And I think that there was more just normalcy. So on a sitcom, you know, the guy's now a teacher or whatever, but he's, he's joking with his friends about their deployment to Iraq, just putting it into the narrative in a normal way. Right, not like a sensationalized way. I think is really important. The I problem, like, the problem is on both sides is we're hitting a wall. I don't know. There needs to be a massive PSA that goes on every <laughs> yeah. television, every phone. That's like, hey, real quick, listen. Don't ask veterans if they've killed people. Don't ask veterans yes, if they see they blood. Can. If they're gonna freak out, like, it, it, I don't know. Like, you really need to teach some of these. I agree, dumb people not to ask so illiterate questions. But I understand that they just they don't. That's the thing. They don't understand how to go about and there needs to be. Well, they all only know to, to Katie's that. point. They only know what they've seen. Right? Yeah. True. So there needs to be in these big productions, whether it's a TV show, a movie or some other books, whatever it is, there needs to be that side of it to understand. Like it, it could be easily written into a sitcom. It'd actually be kind of funny if, uh, you yeah. know, you walk into a room, go to a boss or something like that, and they're like, hey, you're going to shoot up the place? And it's like a veteran just stares at him and gives him like a sideways stare or something. That'd kind of be a, a, a comedic but also like very real moment. Maybe we'll that create happens. that next. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Your next project. All Hollywood. But yeah, I think I think all these things are are excellent points, and I'm, I'm glad we're having these conversations because I think they need to be had more often. And... Um, you know, somebody who's had an extensive military career and, mm-hmm. you know, we, we didn't even really talk about it, but I'm kind of glad we didn't honestly, to a certain extent is like you, you being a, a female at, you know, the highest level strategic planner for our military is such a, what should be a huge accomplishment, but it shouldn't be an accomplishment because you're a female. It's an accomplishment because you're an incredible person. Yeah. That's a damn big deal. Yeah. And, um, I actually read your article that you were quoted in. I don't, I don't remember who wrote it. Um, but, uh, I was, I think it was military times, uh, for the, the event you were at. Um, I don't know if it was last week or the week before. Oh, right. A couple weeks. Yeah. 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 Um, but, uh, I, I think it's incredibly powerful for you to, um, to show that you're just a great human and it doesn't matter. And I think that's what needs to come from veterans, from service members, from, really just to reshape society from there being these factions and and separated groups Mm -hmm. to just say, I just do good work because I'm a good person. Yeah. You know, and that's all it is. Well, I want to, uh, Katie, one, thank you for taking time. Obviously we're recording this on a Saturday before we air it next week, but, um, I just want to thank you for taking time away from your family, for coming on, 
Uh, for everybody listening, obviously we took a week off because we released our book at the National Veterans Memorial Museum. Katie, who's our host on this episode, was there with her husband, and we can't thank you enough for supporting mm -hmm. the book, for you and your sister being in it. And for, you know, we announced it recently, but for those that don't know, the book is available now. But coming up next year, we are turning the book into an actual art exhibit at the same museum. So in Columbus, Ohio, uh, Katie and her sister, their portrait will be on full display. Mm -hmm. giant artworks printed and framed and oh God. as like as as a, as a walkthrough so anybody who wants to see that mean mug face it's gonna be on full Maybe really yeah <laughs> but it's cool to to have that to turn this book into an actual art exhibit that's going to be in the museum for six months and then it's going to travel around the united states to different um military museums and different places throughout the united states uh we'll definitely tell our viewers and listeners more as time comes, but I just want to share that because one, I want to explain to people why we missed an episode last week, but also I think it's important to share that you and your sister's story is going to be on full display, not only in the book, but as an artwork in the museum. Wow. Yeah. Thank you both so much. I mean, you guys are hugely inspirational to me. My sister and I are proud to be part of the book for sure. And um, I'm just honored to talk to you guys. I learned something from you all the time. And I think these conversations with, you know, both being a photographer, Dan being a veteran and now doing this, me mm -hmm. being active duty. I mean, this is, this is what we need to do going forward and just keep this going. Absolutely. Yeah. And if there's ever anything that we can help with you guys and your family, we're obviously here to keep that conversation going. And again, we thank you for taking the time to be on our podcast and just for all the help you've done so far with the book and everything else. Oh, thanks so much. You guys, you guys are, are the best. Really. All right. Thank you. Have a great Saturday.